Now, my name's Robin, and our first reading today is from Exodus 34. So in the Church Bible, it's page 78. If you'd like a Church Bible, put up your hand. So we're reading from Exodus 34. Chapter 29. As Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands as he descended the mountain, he did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. But Moses called out to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he commanded them to do everything the Lord had told him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. After he came out, he would tell the Israelites what he had been commanded, and the Israelites would see that Moses' face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with the Lord. Before we read our second reading, the New Testament reading for the day, uh, I'd like to ask you to consider something. What would you say uh, if your neighbour said to you, or a a non-Christian friend, a family member, a work colleague, what would you say if they asked you, why should I come to your church? What is the one reason you could give? Why, why should someone who has little to no knowledge of, of God uh, think about or decide to come and join us here? Or maybe you've in, invited them to read the Bible with you and they ask, why should I read the Bible with you? How would you respond? Have a think. We're going to have an opportunity. This, I know this is the stupidest thing to do sometimes, but I want you to talk to one another beside you Uh, and ask one another, what is the one reason you could give for them to come here? And I will struggle to get your attention back in two minutes. Go for it. Why should they come and join us here? Alrighty, friends, start... Did everyone get an opportunity to speak? All right. Why should I come to your church? Uh, Dan Bailey's offered himself as the one reason uh, why people should come. Dan Gardner. Oh, too many Dans. (laughs) 
Uh, uh, Len, I'm useless at names, aren't I? Len is tennis. Is that, cl- is that close? I don't even say her full name anymore because of various reasons. Obviously, as good as our morning tea and espresso coffee are, I think our neighbours still would love and prefer to go out to Glenory Bakery uh, to sit in the warm sun out there. So that's certainly not going to be a reason. And I think most people would prefer to go walking uh, around the block rather than sit here and do stuff that has become so foreign to them, uh, to our society, like praying. Uh, Why would you come and gather here? So what could you say? How could you explain what is actually happening when we are gathering here each Sunday? or when we gather together in our gospel teams or to get, when we gather to read the Bible. In today's passage, Paul is going to tell us about the absolutely mind-blowing, life-transforming thing that happens when we gather. Uh, he'll explain to us about something so great and glorious, something so beyond uh, people's expectations that When you truly understand what is happening, your desire is to be here, to gather with with Christians. Unfortunately, most people won't accept our reasons, and, and there's a reason for that, and Paul will address that as well in this passage. Nevertheless, there is something absolutely amazing, uh, something that is happening to all of us and amongst us, that makes us so different, that makes us more glorious and amazing than anyone else in the world around us. Let's read 2 Corinthians 3 and see if you can spot that great thing that is happening amongst us, the reason why non-Christians should join us here. second reading for this morning is uh, 2 Corinthians 3. In the Church Bible, it's on page 1024. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are Christ's letter delivered by us, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence we have through Christ before God. It's not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, But our adequacy is from God. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, chiseled in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside, 
How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because the glory that surpasses it. For if what was set aside was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Since then, we have such a hope. We act with great boldness. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. Yet, still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Friends, did you spot it? Did you spot the reason why we invite our non-Christian friends and contacts to join us here on a Sunday or into, to gather with us to read the Bible? It's okay if you didn't. We're going to work through this passage and unpack it. Uh, and as Ron and I was, were discussing earlier, there is so much in here. We will only skate over a lot of it. Uh, but I really commend you go away and reflect further and, and deeper on what's in this chapter. But I trust it will be clear by the end why it is so important, why, why it's vital that non-Christians join us here uh, each week. Now you'll notice that this chapter uh, begins rather abruptly uh, because the, Paul has made a statement at the, back, the end of uh, the previous chapter. Remember, Paul has been defending himself, uh, defending his travel plans, defending his ministry amongst them. And he says back in chapter 2, verse 17, uh, For we do not market the word of God for profit like so many. On the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from God and before God. So Paul states that there are many people in that church in Corinth who are in the false advertising business. Uh, They are peddlers of God's word. They use the scriptures for their own power gain and their own financial profit. Uh, Whereas Paul is claiming here that he's acted sincerely and he's uh, he's been sent by God. Uh, There are many other teachers in Corinth who are obviously opposed to Paul and his teaching. And, and from this chapter and actually at the back end of this letter, we, we assume that these teachers were really pushing an uh, emphasis on legalistic Jewish practices based on the Old Testament. Uh, of course, claiming that you're the authentic one doesn't actually make you authentic. 
the same charge of marketing God's word for profit could be levelled against Paul. And, and so, and it raises a question, why shouldn't we consider Paul like one of those dodgy phone scammers, you know, that claim to be from Telstra, they just want to check your details, what's your bank account number, uh, those sorts of things. So Paul here is defending himself. Uh, he's responding to that exact same accusation if it, it was being brought against him. Now the opposition seemed to have gathered these letters of recommendation. Uh, this week I picked a random book off my bookshelf thinking, oh, this is a good idea. Uh, Chapo, the Chapo Collection, a biography about John Chapman. Now John Chapman was a... a, a an Australian evangelist uh, and shared the gospel with many people here and abroad. And uh, David Mansfield's written this biography of his life. On the back, there are three recommendations. They give good reasons to read the book and uh, why we should know about Chapo and they thank David Mansfield for his work. That's, that's you know, basic marketing strategy we see all the time. A l recommendation. Well, these false teachers in Corinth, or teachers in Corinth, we'll call them at the moment, have these letters that uh, commend them. They're from other people, obviously. And so they, uh, this is, these recommendations are the foundation for proving their authenticity. What is the proof that Paul's work is authentic? Well, Paul says it is the Corinthians. You see that in verse 2? You yourselves are our letter. The proof is seen uh, in not only the way that Paul loves them, how he has them in their heart, but it's seen in the way that the Corinthians have responded to his teaching. Uh, the Corinthians themselves are the proof of Paul's authenticity. In verse 3, Paul takes that even up a, a notch by saying how the Corinthians are actually Jesus' letter of recommendation. In fact, the, the Spirit of God has inscribed this letter within them, on their hearts of flesh. Now, I hope you, as we are reading these verses, you're, you're observing two things. Firstly, Paul has started to use the, the language of the Old Testament law. You see here he mentions the tablets of stone here in this verse. Uh, Paul is starting to address that Old Testament emphasis in his opposition's teaching. Uh, secondly, see, it is, we, we start to see here uh, th this amazing thing that happens amongst us, the reason why we invite non-Christian people to be amongst us. God has done something amazing within the lives of these Corinthians. He's achieved it through his spirit. In fact, it's a very Trinitarian, verse 3 is very Trinitarian. You see, Jesus, God and the spirit are all involved here. God hasn't given them an ancient legal code to uh, try and obey. He has effected change within them, on their hearts. In fact, Paul points out in verses 4 to 6 that this is really all of God's work. Uh, what has been accomplished amongst the Corinthians is it's not about Paul, but rather it's about God. 
Paul has great confidence in the Corinthians because of the outcomes, uh, the results of his work amongst them or God's work amongst them. In fact, we should note that Paul is, Paul's interest is not in terms of letters of recommendation, an external thing. He looks at the results, the outcomes, at, at what's already happened in people's lives. And what God has achieved in the Corinthians' hearts does not depend on Paul's abilities or, or his skills or his competencies. He is merely a postman. Do you see that? He's one of those who delivers Christ's letter. Uh, and like a postman, Paul is passing on Christ's message to the Corinthians. He's a servant of the new covenant. Uh, you know, the, the term covenant is another way we... Uh, a promise, and the, like the Old Testament covenant was God's promise to bring blessing. Uh, he said it to Abraham, he gave one to David... Uh, these promises that are part of the Old Testament promises, uh, we'll, we'll address that in a minute, but Paul is a servant of the new covenant, the new promise that God has made. And it comes to us in the message about Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. Uh, that message is what we often call the gospel. Uh, that's the... Christian jargon for that message about Jesus Christ, the gospel. Friends, I hope you're starting to see the reason why we must invite our non-Christian friends to be amongst us. God does something extraordinary within the hearts of people by his spirit. When that message about Jesus is delivered uh, to them, the spirit does what? Do you see it there at the end of verse 6? The Spirit gives life. The Spirit gives life. Now, such a, a, a statement actually requires explanation, doesn't it? Uh, if we're already alive and we receive a message, how can we already be, how can we made more alive? What, that's essentially the question that could be asked. And to explain this, Paul makes a contrast between that Old Testament law uh, what Moses inscribed on those stone tablets, uh, things like the laws like the Ten Commandments, and he compares it to this new covenant, the new promises that we have about Jesus Christ. And he shows how the new covenant, the gospel message, is far superior than the Old Testament Jewish law. Firstly, we have that contrast the contrasting outcomes of death versus life, verses 6 and 7. And the reason for this, as you see in verse 9, the, the reason that the, the outcome is death, verse 9, is that the Old Testament law condemns the one who tries to meet its standards. I, I just thought, oh, I'll give you an illustration. So why not go back to the first commandment and... and We'll see how we measure up to that, to what that uh, law is and whether we could keep it. So in Exodus 20, uh, God gives his first commandment. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods beside me. Now if we were to be judged against that law, then I think we would all be declared guilty. 
for the, for the very second, that moment we decide to do what we want to do, when we determine I'm going to live my life my own way, we have made ourselves our own God. And, and I think we do that all the time, don't we? Uh, we? We go through life not even considering how God would have us live. Um, most of the time we're unaware of we're doing it. Uh, but we do it nonetheless. So the Old Testament laws really just highlight how bad we are, how sinful we can be, how, ha- how hard our hearts are, to use the language uh, of Ezekiel. He, he talks about hearts being stone. Consequently, if we stood before God on the basis of that Old Testament law, we would be condemned we would face an eternal death sentence. Whereas Paul's service in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ brings, what, verse 9, righteousness. The outcome of judgment under the new covenant has already been declared. We are declared righteous. We are declared not guilty because the just judgment and the wrath of God has already fallen on Jesus Christ as he was hanging there on the cross. Furthermore, we can experience this transforming work of the Spirit in our hearts, turning them from stone, sinful and corrupted hearts, giving us life to be with God for all eternity. There is no condemnation for those who know and accept the news about Jesus who rely on Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, as Paul says in Romans 8. So regarding condemnation under the old law and righteousness according to the new covenant, we've got to say the new covenant is superior. The other contrast in this chapter you might have noticed is the glory associated with each uh, covenant. As we read uh, in Exodus 34 earlier, Moses stood in the very presence of God and he's got the stone tablets there, he's walking down the mountain and he, and he realises his face is radiating. He is, it's mirroring, you know, it's sort of, in your, if you get a real good sunburn, uh, your face radiates the sun. Well, Moses is radiating God's glory uh, because he's been in God's presence. And the, the Israelites, they are extremely scared by it. Uh, Moses had to hide his face. He had to put a veil over his head. And eventually, that glory faded. That glory had to fade because Moses eventually died. So the Old Testament law came in glory. God himself proclaimed his laws to Israel, mediated through Moses, but that glory faded. So that glory, the majesty and weightiness of God and the laws of the Israelites is now surpassed by an even greater and an eternal glory seen in the majesty of Jesus Christ. As Paul says in verse 11, for what was set aside was glorious. So Moses and the Old Testament law, that had a glory. But what endures will be even more glorious. Those new promises which come to us 
about Jesus are so much more brighter and majestic and weighty and glorious. Now, we have a, a light at the end of our driveway, right next to our garage door, and anyone who's coming to our place at night, we, we know of, will flick on the light because they have to get up the driveway between the car. We have this little gutter that runs alongside the driveway and we don't want anyone to trip. And occasionally I've come, come home in the afternoon to find that we've left the light on. Uh, I've left in the morning, walked straight past the light while it's shining and driven off without realising it. That's because the light isn't contributing anything when the sun's out. Uh, it, its effectiveness and usefulness has been surpassed by the, the radiance of the sun. In the same way, that Old Testament law and its radiant glory has been surpassed by what God has done in Jesus. How is this majesty and awesomeness of God present now in the news about Jesus Christ? Well, in verses 12 to 18, Paul again contrasts that law of Moses with the work of Jesus. The focus again is on the outcomes uh, and Paul firstly tells us the consequences of focusing on the Old Testament law, why the outcomes of legalistic religion leave us condemned and dead in our sins. Let's read the outcomes again in verses 13 to 15 uh, when the Old Testament is read without any reference to Jesus Christ. Paul writes, When we are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted, because it is set aside only in Christ. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So the sad outcome of the teaching of those who are peddling God's word is that people's minds and hearts remain hardened. Uh, you see, the, I think the language is very... The images that Paul uses in this chapter are very slippery. He's saying now that the... Or they're, they're changing a lot. He's saying that the truth here is being hidden from them. They, you can read the books from Genesis to Deuteronomy, the books of Moses, uh, and you can learn so much about God. You can learn about his holiness and his righteousness. You might even try to keep his glorious laws and they, you might even seek to offer a sacrifice for sin. But unless you know the Lord Jesus Christ... Uh, who fulfilled all the Lord's demands, your obedience and sacrifices will be unacceptable to God. They'll be useless. You will remain blind. You will remain lost. Admittedly, I've never encountered any Jewish evangelist who's, encouraged, who's knocked on my door and encouraged me to consider obeying the Old Testament law. I have, however, met many other legalistic religions and cults pushing their false teaching. Uh, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses and those who follow Allah, to name a few. 
Even our society tries to sell us false dreams, materialistic hopes uh, and glorious yet unhelpful worldviews. It is no surprise that most people in our society have hearts of stone when it comes to Christianity. Their minds are veiled, their, their understanding is hidden from Jesus Christ. They are blind and dead in their sins. Is that how you perceive the people around you that you work with, the non-Christians? Their rejection and their ignorance of God and his son Jesus Christ means that God's anger and condemnation remains on them. And I find that leaving such people in such a, such a destitute state, one of the most unloving things I might do. It, it's sure hard to share the, the, uh, a message of hope with them. Um, I, I, I had a, a very hard week having those who were here for Lorraine's funeral. It is very hard to share the gospel knowing the people in the front row in front of you have no, no care, no concern for Jesus Christ. They have no hope. Their hearts are hard. That's a really hard thing to do. But I'm mourning not just someone's passing, but their rejection of the gospel. A metaphorical veil lays over their hearts and their minds, of stone, their hearts of stone. And that is sad. That is why a simple invitation for them to join us here can be the most life-transforming experience they might have. The, the offer of reading the Bible some, with someone could lead to life, eternal life. And, and it's in these most beautiful words that Peter, uh, Peter, Paul, there we go, name change again, uh, Paul explains this transformation and this freedom from death, how hard hearts and veiled minds can be, become softened and enlightened, how human blindness, how their veil can be removed. And Paul explains these outcomes in, of the new covenant in verses 16 to 18. Uh, I think these are the best verses in this, chap this chapter and we'll spend a moment reflecting on them. So firstly, verse 16, but when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Uh, that idea of turning is very an old, a very common Old Testament idea. Uh, God often calls his people to turn from idols to him. Uh, it's the idea of making a conscious decision to change allegiances from false things back to our covenant God, Yahweh. The gospel, that news about Jesus, is that he died on the cross for sin. It is that message which calls us to turn, to turn to Jesus, to join his kingdom. Uh, there is obviously a hint here of repentance is required, seeking mercy for him. Uh, the, the amazing outcome of repenting, do, do, making that U-turn in our allegiance and apologising to God for our sin is that the veil is removed. Again, a spiritual work. 
that, that, that thing that separates you from God's glory. Remember, Moses stood in God's presence. That's why he radiated God's glory. Well, for us, we too stand in God's presence. Our veil is removed. The person who turns to Jesus now stands in God's presence and is soaking up his glory without fear because we do not have, uh, we, are, we know we will not be condemned. Isn't that the most astounding description of the Christian conversion experience? But that's not all, and that's not meant to be uh, a dodgy marketing reference. Secondly, we experience freedom. Verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the Old Testament law condemned us for our sin, Jesus Christ brings freedom. We were once enslaved to sin. However, by the Holy Spirit, who comes from Jesus Christ, he frees us from sin to be holy. We are free to serve and live for Jesus. The weight of the condemnation that uh, sits on our shoulders has been lifted. It's been taken away. We are free. And consequently, we are being transformed to be more and more like Jesus Christ in all his majesty and glory. I I think, again, verse 18 is uh, just well worth writing out on a uh, card or something, sticking it on the fridge or somewhere prominent and memorising it. Now we all, having unveiled faces, reflecting the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into his image from glory to glory. That is what's happening in your lives, friends. You are being transformed to reflect the image of Jesus Christ. Do you see that in verse 18? It is not Moses, but it is we who reflect the glory of God in our lives. Uh, that, uh, a metamorphosis is happening. You know, the uh, classic illustration is an ugly, hairy caterpillar turning into a beautiful butterfly. Well, that is what God is doing in, in us through his spirit. The outcome of hearing, and that, that's the outcome of hearing the message of Jesus. Our hearts and minds are transformed by his spirit. We stand in the presence of God, our own faces reflecting God's glory, just like Moses experienced. So, step by step, God is transforming us to be exactly like our holy, glorious Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? Uh, It's often hard to see how it's happening actually in your life, isn't it? That's the struggle. But correct me if I'm wrong. Is that not one, if not the only reason, we invite lost people to join us? It is not this sort of transformation what we desire for ourselves. Isn't this the sort of transformation we also desire amongst our non-Christian family members? 
our friends, our work colleagues, our neighbours. The true authentic ministry and service that Paul demonstrates is the task of proclaiming Jesus Christ. And God calls people to repentance as they encounter Jesus in the scriptures. And friends, we can have such confidence like Paul in this task. Yes, we are unimpressive people. Yes, our words often fail us. However, this passage screams at us that such work is God's transformative work. It's the work of his spirit. As the hard-hearted person comes to the scriptures, as they read the scriptures, as they hear that message about Jesus Christ and they are pointed to salvation in him, God does this amazing transformation within them. The, the, con, the condemnation that we and they deserve has already come on Jesus. And so they and we experience true freedom from sin. Its guilt and its condemnation don't weigh us down anymore. Rather, God, God starts changing us to reflect Jesus. Such a transformation is what we pray for and, and that we seek in, in those who do not know him, uh, in their thoughts and their hard hearts. It's what we pray for one another, that God will continue to transform us. Because this is not just about the lost. The Christian life is, uh, a, must be a life characterised by repentance, a life uh, admitting that we, we fail so often to trust and obey Jesus Christ in every thought, word and deed. Admitting our sin does not negate the glorious promises of life that God gives us. We, we stand in God's glory, but we are reminded in Scripture, we are urged to encourage one another, to gather, to encourage one another, especially as that day of judgment is coming. This reality drives us to make every effort to know our Lord Jesus Christ, to live a holy life. It drives us to be like Christ, to flee sin so that we might reflect his glory. Now we've skate, skated over so many things in this chapter Yet I pray that your heart might have been open to the great, majestic and weighty transformation that God is doing in our lives by his spirit as we turn in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. And may you have the confidence and the strength to walk as God's postman, carrying Christ's letter to be written on human hearts, that glorious message of salvation through Jesus Christ. Amen.